We're going to be looking at chapters 40 and 41, basically, in Job this afternoon. We're going to start with verse 6 of chapter 40, because the first five verses belong with the preceding chapters. And we're going to read, uh, look at chapters 40, 41, and the first few verses, then of 42, first six verses of 42. What I'll read is uh, chapter 40 from verse 6 on, and then those first six verses of 42. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Look now at the behemoth which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now, his strength is in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze, his ribs like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him, and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade, the willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. And then turning to chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes." Let's ask God's blessing on our study. Almighty God and Father, grant that we may understand a little of your greatness this afternoon as we look at these chapters in Job, and that we may come to fear you as Job did and to confess our insignificance and our sinfulness as we stand in your presence. Give to us this wisdom that we may fear your name and depart from evil. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The uh, chapters we're looking into this afternoon uh, are, of course, the second part of God's speech to Job. The first part was found in chapters uh, 38 and 39. 
And they ended, that first part ended with the Lord challenging Job again, verse 2 of chapter 40, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. And with Job making a confession before God, behold, I am vile, or as we saw last week, behold, I am of little account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. But the Lord is not yet finished with Job. And the Lord, therefore, comes to him again and speaks to him again in chapters 40 and 41. And this part of this speech of God has itself three parts to it. First of all, in verses 6 to 14, the Lord again issues a challenge to Job. Verse 7, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Then in verses 15 to 24, he describes the behemoth to Job. And in verses 41, and chapter 41, rather, he describes the Leviathan. And in the last part of what we're looking at, the first verses of chapter 42, we have Job's response to this part of God's speech. So we're going to begin then by looking at verses 6 to 14 of chapter 40. Notice that those verses with which we begin here are very similar to the verses found in chapter 38. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. These are the same words that God spoke to Job at the beginning of the first part of his speech. And the only difference is that the Lord inserted another, another uh, comment or another question in there that we don't have here in chapter 40. In chapter 38, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So we're repeating those verses that occur then at the beginning also of chapter 38. We find again that the Lord is speaking to Job out of the whirlwind, therefore manifesting his power to Job, showing Job in a visible way how great he is in power and majesty, and then challenging Job to prepare himself like a man and to answer his questions. But it was with those words in chapter 38 that the Lord ended the introduction to his speech and went on to the, the body of the speech and began to describe his work in the creation. But here he extends this challenge to Job in verses 8 to 14. So this is a much more detailed challenge that the Lord brings to Job here in these verses. And the first question that he asks Job is, would you indeed annul my judgment? Now, of course, we have to ask, in what way was Job trying to annul the judgment of God? And I think there are two possibilities there. It may be a specific reference to Job wanting to escape from what we may call the judgment of God in his affliction. Not that uh, God was judging him for particular sin in that affliction, 
but that we may think of all God's adverse providences as in a sense judgment, or if you want to use a different word, chastisement. And it may be that what God is doing here to Job then is saying, do you think it's within your right or within your power to annul, that is to undo what I have determined needs to be done in your case? Can you uh, stop this that I have done? Can you, do you have a right even to exercise yourself against me in this way? So that's one possibility. The other possibility, and I think perhaps that's the more likely here, is that this is a more general question that Job wants to annul God's judgment in the sense that he wants to meet God on equal footing, as it were. He wants either God to come down to his level so that they can meet on level ground, if you want to put it that way, so that they can meet as equals, or he wants himself to uh, reach God's level so that he can challenge God there as an equal with God. And that God is saying to uh, Job here then, would you indeed annul my judgment in the sense, would you bring me down from my judgment seat, whether it's that you want to bring me down to your level or you want to be exalted to my level, you would be uh, putting yourself on the level of the judge. As if a, a prisoner at the bar could stand alongside the judge to judge his own case. Would you indeed annul my judgment in that sense? And I think that's probably the more likely thing that God means here. Are, are you going to um, stand in court with me and join me behind the judge's bench and judge your own case? And then... In the second question, would you condemn me that you may be justified? Now we saw already that Job wanted to justify himself rather than God. That was one of the faults that Elihu found with Job. As we saw in, chapter, in the earlier chapters of Elihu's speeches. But he also mentions condemning God, and this too Job had really done when he said, God has taken away my justice. And now God takes these two things, that Job wanted to justify himself rather than God, and that Job had accused God of taking away his justice, and he puts them together and he says to Job, look what you're doing. Would you condemn me so that you may be justified? And that's really what Job was doing, isn't it? He was justifying himself. He wasn't just justifying himself rather than God. He had actually made an accusation against God. You have taken away my justice. He had condemned God to justify himself. And God says to him, uh, do you think that's your place? Your right? And again, then, in answer to this presumption of Job, refers Job to his power. Verse 9, have you an arm like God, or can you thunder 
with a voice like his. If you really want to do this, if you want to annul my judgment, if you want to condemn me to justify yourself, then you have to answer this question. Do you have an arm like I have? Can you thunder with a voice like mine? Do you have that kind of power? Because only one with that kind of power can do the things you want to do. And if you have that kind of power, God goes on, then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. That is, assume the trappings of that power. Reveal that power externally in the displays of your glory and the glory and majesty that you claim for yourself. I clothe myself with the glories of my creation, as it were. That's the splendor and the majesty which I show to men. Well, you do the same. Adorn yourself with that same majesty and splendor. Array yourself with that same glory and beauty. And when you've done so, then do what I do. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. That is, bring judgment on the wicked. That's my function. You think you can act like me. You can assume my right to judge. Well, then do it. Judge the wicked as I do. And if you can do that, finally then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. And I think that's a a very um, striking question or a striking uh, point that God makes there. There's irony in that, isn't there? God has afflicted Job. Job has been crying to God to deliver him and has said that God has taken away my justice. He has justified himself. God says, well, if you want to take that kind of position, then I'll confess to you that your own right hand can deliver you. You don't have any need of me to deliver yourself from this affliction. You can save yourself. So why even are you coming to me with your complaint? The whole point is that God is putting Job in his place. He's saying, You are not God. You are not the judge of heaven and earth. You are not the one to determine what is right for your life here in the world. You don't have the kind of power I have. You don't have the kind of glory I have. You can't judge the wicked as I do. Your own right hand can't save you. Therefore, Don't question my judgment. And then again, God goes on to describe the revelations of his power. And again, it's all about God's power here in these next chapters. The revelations of his power in the behemoth and in the Leviathan. The rest of chapter 40 for the behemoth and chapter 41 for the Leviathan. Now it's been for many, many years a puzzle to what these two uh, beasts refer. 
I think most commonly today, those beasts are interpreted to be the hippopotamus, the behemoth, and the crocodile, the leviathan, in chapter 41. There are other suggestions, but I think those are the two most common ones. There are, however, other suggestions. There are those who suggest, for example, a parallel here with the two beasts of Revelation 13. And you remember in Revelation 13, John saw two beasts, one rising out of the sea and one rising out of the land. And it's very obvious there in Revelation 13 that these two beasts are symbolic. They're not real, literal beasts. And these would say then that these beasts here are symbolic as well. The problem, I think, with that is that the descriptions of those beasts are so completely different. In Revelation, it's very clearly symbolical language. You have the beasts speaking, you have the beasts in the service of the dragon, and you have all this uh, stuff about the rebellion of the beasts against God. But here, there's none of that. It's all about the mass, God's mastery of these beasts instead. The second thing is another suggestion is made by Christopher Ash, also that these are symbolic beasts. And he takes behemoth as a symbol of death. Behemoth represents death to him. And then Leviathan represents Satan. So these are the two great enemies of man. And God is saying here, I master these beasts. Can you, Job, master these two, death and Satan? Now there is a little bit, anyway, of scriptural ground for identifying Leviathan with Satan. And that ground is that in the Septuagint translation of Job 41, the Septuagint uses the word dracon, the Greek word dracon, to translate the Hebrew word leviathan. And that word dracon, or dragon, as we would translate it, is the same word used in Revelation 12 and 13 about Satan himself, the great dragon, who tries to devour the seed of the woman. But I do not believe there's any such biblical support for the behemoth representing uh, death. And again, it does not seem to me that the point here is that these creatures have such power over men. It seems to be more an objective display of their power in these two chapters. Though the fear of man is uh, talked about somewhat in chapter 41. So it seems to me that these are probably literal beasts, though it's very difficult to identify uh, which beasts they refer to. I think it's possible, myself, that these might refer to dinosaurs which no longer exist, and that Job knew of such beasts through oral tradition from before at least probably the time of Noah. that God is saying to him, these are the kinds of beasts I created. Could you, if you encountered one of these beasts, master them? 
Now, the behemoth, the, the hippo, fits the description of the behemoth, I think, fairly well. When you look at the various things that are said about the behemoth, a lot of it fits the hippopotamus pretty well. But there are a couple of places where it does not. Verse 17, for example, he moves his tail like a cedar. If you know what a hippopotamus's tail looks like, you probably would not say of it that he moves it like a cedar. And uh, then again, in verse 24, we have, in our translation, a, a connecting of verse 24 with verse 23. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth. That probably a pretty fair description of the hippopotamus. Though he takes it in his eyes, that is, though the river is flowing into his eyes, it doesn't bother him, or one pierces his nose with a snare. But the New American Standard Bible separates the two verses and puts verse 24 in the form of a question, which is probably more accurate. Can anyone capture him when he is on the watch with barbs? Can anyone pierce his nose? So it's a separate reference to the great power of this behemoth and man's inability to master it. And this is the, um, what's emphasized with regard to this hippopotamus throughout. You can go through that and it's, it's all about his strength. His strength is in his hips, his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar the sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. A, an enormously powerful animal, therefore, is what God is talking about. And he's really making the point, Job, you did not create this, and you're not able to master it. How much less, then, are you in a position to argue or contend with me? Then in chapter 41, we have the Leviathan. And again, I'm not going to go through this description in great detail, but I think we should say perhaps a little bit more about this than about the behemoth. There's various uh, uh, paragraphs, I think, that we can identify here in this uh, series of questions that Job, God asks Job in chapter 41 about the Leviathan. Notice that in verses 1 to 8, the questions are asked directly to Job. And the force of these questions to Job is, can you do anything with this Leviathan? In verse 1, for example, can you go fishing and pull him in with your hook and line? In verse 2, can you control him as you do a bull, piercing his nose or his jaw with a ring or with a hook and, and leading him behind you like you would a bull? A bull's a pretty strong animal, but can you do this with the Leviathan? In verses 3 to 4, will you, he act subserviently to you? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly with you? Will he make a covenant with you because he's afraid of you and wants to um, keep himself safe from your power? 
Will you take him as a servant forever? In verse 5, will you make him your pet? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? In verses 6 to 8, can you kill and eat him? Will your companions make a banquet of him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Notice the warning. Remember the battle. Never do it again. You dare to try to do this thing, you're going to end up on the wrong side of the conflict. You're going to lose. And you'll wish you had never started. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? And here notice how God extends this from Job then in verses 1 to 8 to everyone. In verses 9 and following. Shall one, not Job, shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. And if that's the case with the Leviathan, who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him everything under heaven, including the Leviathan, is mine? So God's basically saying to Job, look, you can't do anything with this Leviathan. He's far beyond your power to master. And if he is beyond your power, how much more am I beyond your power? He continues in the same theme, in the same idea, verses 12 to 14. I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? Notice how, especially in that last verse, he talks about the face of the uh, Leviathan. He's going to come back to that in a little bit. In verses 15 to 17, it's all about his scales. His scales are very strong and tightly knit so that no weapon can pierce them. His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. In verses 18 to 21, it's all about his head and the various features of his head, his Sneezings, his eyes, his eyelids, his mouth, the smoke that comes from his nostrils as from a boiling pot, his breath that kindles coals and the flame that comes out of his mouth. This is probably hyperbolic language, but anyway, symbolic of his strength. Verses 22 to 24, it's about the strength of his body and of his neck. Strength dwells in his neck and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. Even the mighty are afraid of him because they know their weapons cannot avail against him. Verses 25 to 30. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. These are things that would be used as weapons against him. Uh, Bronze uh, uh, swords and 
or iron swords and um, bronze bows, for example. The um, scriptures talk about the arrows cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. His undersides, I think this is probably part of that too, though um, some take it separately. His undersides are like sharp potsherds. They're very hard and weapons aren't effective even against his undersides. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. And then in verses 31 and 32, he makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. You can picture the froth of his wake rising on the sea behind him. There's nothing like him then in all the earth. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. He's the strongest and greatest of all the animals that God created. Even the pride of the lion is nothing compared to him. So again, it's, Job, what can you do? Did you create this creature? Can you master this creature? No one can do that. But I made this creature, and I master this creature. I do with him as I please. Who then are you to challenge me? And there, really, after the description of the Leviathan, God's speech ends. When we looked at the first part of this speech, we uh, noticed that God concluded with a final question to Job. Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. That's 40 verse 2. But here, God comes to the end of this description of the Leviathan, and he's nothing more to say. He's made his point to Job. And again, his point has been simply about his omnipotence. No explanations to Job of his suffering. No answers to Job's questions. No justifying of himself to Job other than by these references to his power. He simply says to Job, as it were, I am God, I am the Almighty. You are not in a position to challenge me. And Job now finally understands that as he reveals at the beginning of chapter 42. I know that you can do everything. Now this is nothing new, of course, in Job's theology. It's not that he's learned this for the first time here, but he has learned to confess it in a more effective, a more knowledgeable way than he had before. God had taught him a lesson that he needed to learn. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. I'm not able, Job says, to frustrate your purposes. So Job acknowledges the omnipotence of God then, and he acknowledges it in the context in which God is speaking to him and says, yes, it is time for me to be quiet. 
I should not have asked the questions or made the statements that I did. Once I have spoken twice, but now I will lay my hand on my mouth. Then Job refers back to a statement that God had made, or a question that God had asked in chapter 38, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? And Job says, that was a very good question. I have uttered what I did not understand. I was talking beyond the scope of my understanding, beyond the scope of my ability to understand. I was talking about things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And he's not talking about things that are amazing or remarkable. When he uses that word wonderful, he means things that are beyond his grasp, beyond the ability of his mind to understand what we call today a mystery. He says, these are things that are too wonderful for me. They're beyond my capacity to speak of. Listen please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. And this is the answer then that Job gives. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. That is, I have a better knowledge of you than I did. And because I have this better knowledge, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think that's, that last line of Job is very important when he says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Job answered God before, in chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, he said, remember, behold, I am not vile, but I am of little account. I am of little account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Job confesses his insignificance there in chapter 40, but he does not confess sin. And I think it's probably because Job had not confessed sin that God went on in chapters 40 and 41 to talk further to Job. Job had not yet come far enough in his confession. He needs to repent. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He acknowledges then that he had stepped beyond the boundaries allowed to a man in challenging God, in questioning his justice, in insisting even on his own righteousness with such passion. Job humbles himself now completely before the face of God. These are the two parts of our humility. First, that we admit to God that we are nothing, creatures of the dust. And second, that we admit to him that we are sinners. As George Herbert says in one of his poems, love bade me welcome, but my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. That's a proper humility before the face of God. And, and that's wisdom for us. This is what 
Job had talked about, really, in chapter 28, without properly applying it to himself. The fear of the Lord, he said, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, that is understanding. And then he had gone on not to fear the Lord and to become evil in his challenges to God's justice. But now he has learned wisdom. It's an important theme, actually, in Job, especially verse chapters 28 to 42, this theme of wisdom. There's a reason why Job is called wisdom literature along with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It's literature that teaches the fear of the Lord and departing from evil. This is the book of Proverbs, the lesson of the book of Proverbs, made in a different way than the book of Proverbs teaches it. Proverbs teaches that lesson of the fear of the Lord by showing us what that fear is, how we live in that fear, by giving us all this advice about uh, living in God's world. But this book teaches us that fear by exalting the power and glory of God and making us see how little and how insignificant and how sinful we are. And this is the answer then, God's answer to Job's suffering. My ways are wonderful. That is beyond your comprehension, Job. If I did try to explain them to you, you couldn't understand. They're too deep. My thoughts are greater than your thoughts. Therefore, you must humble yourselves under my hand and fear me and honor me. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. May God bless you with his word.